All right, let's open our Bibles this morning to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is our text. We're going to look at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 32. The topic we'll find there, the Lord encourages his chosen people to set their minds on seeking him during their 70-year captivity in Babylon. The title of our message, A Mindset is a Terrible Thing to Waste. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our morning. It's been great, Lord, coming before your throne in worship. I appreciate, Lord, that because of Jesus Christ, we can come boldly to your throne and find grace and mercy in abundance. Now as we turn our attention to the Bible, to your word, it's our prayer, Lord, that of course we would learn about Jeremiah and his day and age and uh, what was happening historically and politically and all of those things but that we would also, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit among us, Lord, see how these things relate to us today, how they speak to us today to strengthen our understanding of your love for us. We too love you, Lord, and want to uh, honor you by understanding your word today. And so be among us, minister heart to heart. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Christians are the original Occupy movement. They don't just occupy Wall Street, they occupy all streets, wherever they live or work or happen to be at the time. Jesus told his disciples, this is from Luke 19, 13, he said, occupy till I come. He explained what he meant in a parable in which he pictured himself as a certain nobleman who was going away to a far country for a time to receive a kingdom and then return. He pictured his disciples, and that would include you and I, as servants to whom he distributed money called talents. They were to invest for him until his return, at which time he would reward those who were faithful to occupy in his absence. Two servants occupied well, and they were rewarded, while one hid the talent the master had given him, thereby forfeiting any reward. Our text in Jeremiah 29, you'll see it has an occupy till I come feel to it. Jeremiah tells the Jews they will be captive in Babylon for the next 70 years, so they should settle there and make the most of it. As we work through the verses in their original context, we can talk about how we occupy our lives in light of the Lord's promise that he's gone to receive his kingdom, but will definitely return to establish it, and when he does, his reward will be with him for us, his faithful servants. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your life's purpose is to be occupied with the things of the Lord. And number two, your life is too precious to be occupied with the things of the world. Let's take a look at our life's purpose as being occupied with the Lord in verses one through 14. Jeremiah doesn't use the word, but you really could summarize his counsel to them by simply saying, occupy. If they were going to come up with a bumper sticker that, that summarized this, that would be it. And so in verse 1, he says, now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. 
The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Now on the surface, it may sound as if God was telling them to become assimilated uh, into Babylon. He's saying get married, have children, build houses, plant gardens, uh, things like that. Keep something in mind as we comment on these verses. God had promised, and he's going to reiterate in verse 10, the captivity would end after 70 years with the Jews able to return to Jerusalem. Everything they were being told must be interpreted by that insight. So in other words, God says, you're coming back after 70 years, so therefore... And so that means that when they took wives to beget children, it was so that they may be increased as a distinct people and not be diminished. It was a command not to intermarry with Babylonians, but to remain separated unto the Lord. Actually, this was a a big step of faith on the part of the Jews because they, you know, Babylon was coming, it was gonna wipe out Jerusalem burn the temple, they were gonna be taken captive to Babylon, and yet Jeremiah said, yeah, don't worry in one sense because 70 years from now, you will still be a distinct people and we will come back to the land. And so for them to remain Jews, as it were, to, to still you know, trust the Lord and to marry within their own tribes and all of that, that was a great step of faith. It was like saying, I believe the promises of God. There's no outward reason to believe them. We've been destroyed as a people. We're living in Babylon. But I believe that 70 years from now, long after I'm dead, for the most part of the people, the adults at least, God will keep his word. And so we're going to continue to live as the people of God, separated from the world. They were to build their own houses in the manner of Jews rather than buy Babylonian houses. Now, I'm not saying that they all built houses and none of them you know, lived in a Babylonian house, but the idea was remain Jewish. They were to plant gardens and eat their fruit because so much of the diet of the Babylonians was forbidden to the Jews. You get into the book of Daniel, Daniel who was taken in this first captivity. You remember they wanted him to eat all kinds of really delicious red meat. You know, it was the original steak and study kind of a thing. But Daniel said, hey, there's certain things that we can't eat as Jews. And so he ate pulse, whatever that is, some kind of vegetable. It's it's what you guys have that you think is healthy in your blender. Just put all your veggies and stuff in. You know, ah, look at that, you know. I always think of Rocky Balboa drinking a raw egg or six or seven of them in that one famous sequence, you know. But anyway, so they were to stay separated as a people of God. They were to live in Babylon, not as Babylonians, but as a separated people of God who knew that they would one day be returning to their kingdom. 
as Christians, we know Jesus is coming at any moment to resurrect and rapture the church. After an interval of seven years, while the earth is experiencing the great tribulation, Jesus will return to the earth with us in his glorious second coming to establish his kingdom. With that insight, which is really foresight to us, we are to remain separated unto the Lord as the people of God on earth. Like the Jews, we're to marry our own kind. We're to marry believers. We're not to be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Our homes then should be built on solid Christian principles. Regardless what the world says, what the world thinks, what the world is doing, we want to build on solid ground, and our lives, therefore, should bear much spiritual fruit. And so we're not that much different than the Jews, uh, except that our thoughts about this are more spiritual, theirs were more physical. Uh, and so we're, we're in that same position. Verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you. Nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. There was actually a strong anti-Occupy movement. The false prophets were saying that God would defeat the Babylonians and the Jews would soon be returning to Jerusalem. They would be returning, but it wouldn't be any time soon. It would be seven decades later. In our case, it isn't so much that false prophets tell us the Lord isn't returning as it is that we lose the sense his coming is at any moment. For sure, there are false prophets and voices in the world that uh, tell us not to look for the Lord, but we're the ones that need to keep the urgency in our own hearts. His coming is at any moment. Lose that and you let down your guard. You tend to start living more for yourself than for the Lord and for others. Selfishness creeps in where selflessness ought to prevail. Comfort takes priority over commitment. Happiness replaces holiness. Obviously, if you believe that the Lord could come back at any moment, it's gonna have a profound effect on your beliefs and your behaviors. And I can only think that people who are uh, becoming selfish and comfortable and happy or, or going after happiness, their own personal happiness, really don't believe that the Lord could come back at any moment. Otherwise, they would be selfless and committed and uh, they would be pursuing holiness. Verse 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. The whole Bible is the inspired word of God and thus wonderful, but this verse is special. And it's one of those verses, uh, I I hope you'll understand this, I don't like to comment on it because it's been commented on so much and so eloquently and so beautifully that there's, you know, you feel like you can't do it justice. Though originally spoken to the Jews, it reveals the mind of God towards all those he calls his own in every dispensation. This is the mind of God towards you this morning. Why the captivity? Not to be evil toward the Jews, but to reestablish peace in his relationship with them that they had broken through sin. You know, the Bible says that men are born, men and women, mankind is born 
at odds with God. They, it uses the word enmity. We're the enemy of God because we inherit sin and we're sinners and we commit individual sins. God has reconciled himself with us, made peace with us at the cross. And so from God's point of view, peace. But we are enemies of God until we come to the cross and receive what Jesus Christ has done for us there. Uh, And so God says, I don't have any thoughts of evil towards you. I have thoughts of peace towards you. And if you ever doubt that, just look at the cross where the Prince of Peace died so that God could have a relationship with you. So God is telling the Jews here, hey, look, what I'm doing, sending you to Babylon, it's not evil. It's for the sake and the cause of peace. If God had not intervened, if he had not used Babylon to discipline his people, if they had been allowed to continue in their sin, they would have forfeited their future and they would have had no hope. Israel is a people with an amazing future, with the promise of an amazing future. God, you know, promises in the Garden of Eden that he's going to come into humanity as a man and solve the problem of sin by dying and rising from the dead. He's going to defeat the serpent and rise from the dead. And then as you continue reading the progressive revelation of the Old Testament, you realize that he's, not, he's gonna come as a man through the particular line of Abraham through the Jews. And when you get to the book of Romans, <clears throat> there's talk there about all the privileges that the Jews had. They had the prophets and the, the law and the savior and all of these things. They're an incredibly privileged people. And God says, if you continue to go this route, if you continue to sin and rebel and commit idolatry and adultery and all of these things, you're you're going to forfeit that future that I have promised you. And not just you, because Israel, God says Israel's the key to reaching the Gentiles. Everything that happens is gonna happen through Jesus of Nazareth who's gonna have to come through the Jews. And so this is a big thing. And so God says, this is not an evil thing. I have to do this in order to ensure the future and the hope. Your future and the hope of the world depends upon this captivity. So it's a pretty awesome thing that God is doing in disciplining his people. Now, the things God permits in and around your life, they always flow from thoughts of maintaining or restoring peace with you to give you your best future and to firmly establish, not destroy your hope at his appearing. There are probably any number, some of you know, I mean, all of us who have been backslidden at one time or another, you know that there are any number of futures uh, and that God has a best future in mind for you. And we don't always choose that best future for whatever reason. Usually because comfort and happiness and those kinds of things get in the way, the world gets in the way. We lose the sense of the Lord's coming and all that gets in the way. Uh, But God wants your best future for you. And I have to just believe that. And it's easy to believe in one sense because whenever I doubt anything about the Lord, I can just look directly at the cross and see where the Prince of Glory died for me. Why would I think that God would want anything but his best for me? It's just that sometimes getting to his best, uh, is the road to it isn't always the road I would choose. 
It's, it's not a, a road that is always pleasant or has the things along it that I think I want at the time. But I must believe that God has uh, a future and a hope for me because he is God and he wouldn't think anything otherwise and I should therefore submit to his will and realize that what I'm going through is, is necessary in order to give me the best future that God has for me. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. These verses were written to backsliders. They are really more about what God would do to restore them. He would discipline them with restoration as the goal. Babylon was the means he would use. They would see the world for what it was while simultaneously realizing all they had lost. And they would turn to the Lord. And this is exactly what happened in Babylon. There by the rivers of Babylon where they sat down and they wept. They understood how evil, how wrong the world was and how much they had lost in turning away from the Lord while they were safe in his arms, as it were, in Jerusalem, in Judah. They wanted the world. They wanted, they wanted actually the, the best of both worlds, which you, know, you, you have to choose one master or the other. But they thought they could be Jews and, and hang out at the temple and have all of that going for them as God's chosen people and also bring in whatever they wanted to from the world idolatry and adultery and all manner of sin and, and uh, demon worship and sacrificing their children and all of those kinds of things. And God says, I'm going to bring you right into the heart of Babylon. You're going to live in Babylon. You're going to be surrounded by what you think now is beautiful and you're going to see it for what it really is. You're going to realize what you have lost and what you have forfeited and you're going to long for that. You're going to seek after me with your whole heart. And when you do, I will be there. You will, I will be found of you. And we'll work out this problem together and I will bring you back, meaning the nation of Israel. And that's always the, the story of the backslider for those of you and us who have been backslidden. Finally, you get to a point, sooner hopefully than later, where you understand that you know, the freedom that you think you have is really a bondage, it's really a slavery. The world is now destroying you and you see what you've lost. And the, the wonderful thing, not that we should sin so that grace might abound, but when we sin, guess what? Grace abounds. And God says, do you see me? Do you see what you forfeited? Come back to me and let's move forward. Your life is too precious to become occupied with the world, verses 15 through 32. God could certainly defeat Babylon, but to what end? The Jews would be even more bold to sin against him. No, they had become so occupied with the world, they had adopted so much of the world's thinking and manners and customs that God must give them an overdose of the world in order to show them what their lives uh, were like and that their lives as his people were too precious to waste. 
And so verse 15, because you have said, the Lord has raised up for us prophets in Babylon, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in this city and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten. They're so bad. And I will pursue them with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence. I will deliver them to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, an astonishment, a hissing, a reproach among all the nations where I've driven them. Because they have not heeded my word, says the Lord, which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, neither would you heed, says the Lord." It may sound silly to say this, but sin isn't good for you. It may be pleasurable initially, but it is painful in the end. And it's painful in ways you can't even imagine and don't want to. But when it strikes, it's awful. You've probably all seen a TV show or a movie where, you know, the the interrogator comes in. You know, the torturer comes in. and, And they're always trying to come up with new ways to just freak you out. I think that I'm still stuck. I'm not recommending this. I was, wasn't a Christian before I saw, uh, when I saw this movie. I can't remember what's in it except this one part of it, Marathon Man, when Dustin Hoffman was tied to a dental chair and he was tortured by a dentist with dental implements. <laughs> it was awful. It was terrible. I can't go to the dentist anymore without thinking he's going to say to me, is it safe? It was awful. And you know, sin, it always starts off really pleasurable. Say, hey, this is kind of cool. But when it hits, and you all know this, those of you who've been drawn off into sin, it is the worst kind of emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual pain. It is a pain that you cannot imagine because the devil is a master of torture. Not just evil, but of torture. He wants to absolutely torture you and destroy your life. I, 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 do you understand that? Do we understand that? That the devil is on a mission to take as many people as he can with him to hell. And that he wants to not just take you there, he wants to destroy you. You know, we think the common understanding is that people are going to go to hell and the devil rules hell and he tortures them in hell. No, he is tortured in hell. And so are all those that are there. But So the only time he has to torture you is now. And so that's what he's about. He wants to defeat you and torture you now in ways that are unimaginable takes a very arrogant heart to think you can manage sin and not be affected by it, that you can sin a little bit here and there and that it's not going to get you. And it's just sad to think that you and I would prefer sin over your Savior when you consider Jesus endured the cross to set you free from slavery to sin to voluntarily serve him. Jesus defeated the devil on the cross. He's a, uh, he's a, a defeated foe. He, he's a lion that roars with no teeth unless we give him false teeth by following the world. Verse 20, therefore hear the word of the Lord, all you of captivity whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Mesa, 
who prophesy a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. And because of them, a curse shall be taken up by all the captivity of Judah who were in Babylon, saying, the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done disgraceful things in Israel, have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them. Indeed, I know and am a witness, says the Lord. I wouldn't have wanted to be Ahab or Zedekiah, but then I never think I'm going to be one of those guys, a guy singled out for sinning. While I can be thankful that God doesn't expose me every time I sin, maybe I'd be better off thinking that he will expose me for my own good. We need to get back to a sense of shame and embarrassment over sin. As God in his long suffering waited to finalize the Babylonian captivity, their false prophecies seemed true and they went about as if their interpretation of things was accurate. God's long suffering with sinners is why Jesus has not yet resurrected and raptured his church. We talk, uh, talked a lot about that last week. We talk a lot about that because people, they're frustrated. Where is the promise of the Lord's coming? Why do evil things still happen in the world? Where is God when it hurts? He's waiting in his long suffering for more people to get saved. During the delay, scoffers and false prophets and false teachers seem to be enjoying success. And it's going to be that way right up until the end. The word of God must be our foundation. We must look to it to make our judgments. Our lives are too precious to waste them listening to lies when people are perishing. That's what I like about Ministry like Samaritan's Purse, for example. While certain Christians are arguing about whether this Sandy, this storm, this latest storm, you know, is a judgment from God or this kind of thing, people like Samaritan's Purse, they go in and say, it's, it's an opportunity for us to go in and minister the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God. Maybe the last person that's going to get saved in this dispensation is a part of that hurricane and we're gonna witness to them and the Lord's gonna rapture his church. And they understand that it's because of God's long suffering that people suffer. It sounds funny, doesn't it? Because of God's long suffering, people yet suffer, but he doesn't want them to suffer eternally. And so in his long suffering, he waits, but one time, uh, soon in the future, it will be over. Verse 24, you shall speak to Shemaiah the Nehelamite, saying, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, you have sent letters in your name to all the people who are at Jerusalem, to Zephaniah, the son of Maesa, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, so that there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who is demented and considers himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. Now, therefore, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet for you? For he has sent us into Babylon, saying, this captivity is long, build houses and dwell in them and plant gardens and eat their fruit. Now, Zephaniah, the priest, read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah, the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, send to all those in captivity saying, thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nehelamite, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you and I have not sent him and he has caused you to trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will punish Shemaiah the Nehelamite and his family. He shall not have anyone to dwell among his people, nor shall uh, he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. 
So Zephaniah reads Shemaiah's letter to Jeremiah, the one that called him demented and demanded he be arrested and put in stocks. Jeremiah answered it with a word from the Lord. One application for us is to realize that non-believers are always going to scoff at your life, at your insistence that the Lord could return at any moment. Non-believers are gonna criticize everything that you think and do. They're gonna criticize your whole mindset and worldview because it is grounded in your love for Jesus Christ and therefore it is radically different or ought to be than the mindset of the world. They might think you demented and where they hold political power they will incarcerate you or otherwise persecute you. That's, that's the world in which we live. We, we don't think about that all the time, but, but the non-believer thinks of you as a demented individual, as a crazy person who is following the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And since it is at odds with the world, they want to put that down. And all over the world, for all these centuries, wherever uh, you know, the government will allow it, Christians are incarcerated and persecuted and martyred because of those things. And so uh, that's, just, that's just part of uh, our duty as occupying the world. Now, another application here is to encourage us as believers to not become Shemayas by being drawn away from the beauty of the Lord by the beckoning of the world. Shemaiah decided at some point that he was gonna quit listening to Jeremiah, start listening to the voices of the world and the voices of the false prophets and, and start calling Jeremiah the false prophet. He was listening to that word that is always beckoning to us. In one of the Pirates of the Caribbean feature films, mermaids are depicted as beckoning the men with their outward beauty only to be revealed as monsters who would drown them and drag them to horrible drowning deaths. I say mermaids do exist in this sense. The world puts on a beautiful exterior only to lure you to your doom, to hold you under its influence until you can't breathe anymore and kill you. Anything worldly, anything at odds with obedience to Christ, it looks beautiful, but it's deadly in the end. Don't be fooled. Instead, remember that the Lord makes all things beautiful, but he does it in his time. His beauty revealed in you is always something worth waiting for. The Christian life is to be lived backwards in this sense. You're to live it backwards from the meeting that you're gonna have with Jesus at his reward seat. And you wanna build up to that moment. And that means sometimes you sacrifice now, you suffer now in order to reign later. Jesus exerts a controlling power over the world for sure. He is king of kings and lord of lords. By him all things consist and nothing can happen without his permission. At the same time, his real, literal, visible, completed kingdom, he has not yet received. To use the words of Hebrews 2.8, we see not yet all things put under him. In the Psalms you read, he sits on the right hand of the father till his enemies are made his footstool. It is during this delay, some 2,000 years now, that we are to be the Lord's occupation force. Whatever talents, whatever gifts, whatever finances, whatever relationships, anything and everything that constitutes our lives, it ought to be occupied with him. Only then will our lives have purpose and count for something 
in the end. How many stories do we have to hear about famous people, about wealthy people, about successful people who on their deathbed looked back over their lives and wished for the simple values that Christians hold or ought to hold, of family, of love, of compassion, of those kinds of things. How many testimonies of the emptiness of the world do we need to hear before we understand that the eternity that God has built into our hearts can only be filled in a relationship with him? On the subject of Occupy, J.C. Ryle wrote, The Lord Jesus bids you occupy. He wants his servants not only to receive his wages and eat his bread and dwell in his house and belong to his family, but also to do his work. You are to let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Have you faith? It must not be a dead faith. It must work by love. Are you elect? You are elect unto obedience. Are you redeemed? You are redeemed that you may be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Do you love Christ? Prove the reality of your love by keeping Christ's commandments. Oh, reader, in our case, listener, do not forget this charge to occupy. There's no value, not eternally, in building our own kingdom. There is value for eternity in furthering God's kingdom by occupying till he comes. There's a famous ad campaign whose slogan is, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. You, uh, we worked it into our title this morning. A lot of you have heard that. We would say a mindset is a terrible thing to waste. Don't set your mind on the things of the world. That's the idea. You, you and I have the ability to set our mind, or uh, in the New Testament says to set our affections on, uh, wherever we like. We can set our mind and our affections on the world and the things of the world. Or we can set our mind and our affections on the Lord and the things of the Lord, on heaven and our journey there. It's up to us. We can set our mind wherever we want to. And, we're, and wherever we set our mind, that's the direction that we're going to be headed for. And so in summary today, the whole thing here is a mindset, it's a terrible thing to waste. Why waste your whole life set on things of the world which are temporary and are vanishing and are going to pass away? At best, at worst, they're going to lead you into sin which is going to be pain like you've never felt before eventually in this life as everything begins to fall away. A mindset is a terrible thing to waste. Set your mind on things above where Christ dwells at the right hand of the Father. Set your affections on him. Live for him. Love him. Amen?